Hi, everyone. Um, thanks for joining us. The Center for Teaching and Learning is showcasing faculty innovations in and out of the classroom and creating a space for faculty members to share ideas and learn from each other's experiences. This is the first in a series of informal conversations where we ask a faculty member to describe and demonstrate, sometimes, their innovative practices. We're speaking today with Alex Rothstein in the Interdisciplinary Health Sciences Department of the School of Health Professions, where he's the coordinator of the new exercise science program. Alex teaches Introduction to Kinesiology and Exercise Physiology. He uses Canvas extensively in both courses, and it's worth noting that exercise physiology is actually a blended course. He makes extensive use of my media assignments and quizzes tools to ensure students are ready for the in-person components of the course. Alex started at New York Tech in January 2020, just in time for everything to change. Uh, fortunately, though, he came to us with prior teaching experience at Hofstra and at Queens College. Not only that, but Alex has also taught ballroom dancing and is a, a flying trapeze instructor. <laughs> so welcome, Alex. Thank you for having me. What's your favorite course to teach? So uh, as you mentioned, I teach intro to kines and exercise phys. Um, and between the two, you know, I actually have to really think about this because I really enjoy both, right? So introduction to kines allows me to introduce students to the entire field of kinesiology, um, kind of as a whole in general. Um, but as I thought about it, I realized that I love ex-phys, right? Like I like the theory. I love getting into the science of it. Um, asking the why questions. And then um, what I'm really lucky about is when I'm able to have class discussions with students, there's a lot of applied content to it, right? So it's something as simple as, uh, I think I had a student actually last week asking, uh, does having more muscle actually result in burning more calories? And the answer is yes. Now, there is a larger conversation to that, don't get me wrong, but being able to talk about our bioenergetics and why that might actually be applying course content, I I have so much fun with it. I honestly wouldn't give it up for anything. Um, can you tell us a bit about how you blend exercise physiology? How I uh, blend, you said? Mm -hmm. oh, absolutely. So um, in terms of that specific course, um, in the past, it's only been uh, in person um, several hours. Actually, it was a very long course. So it was three hours long. And there was a combination of let's start with lecture and then we transition to um, a lab component. And as I was doing it that way, students were tired. I, you know, honestly, I was tired. Uh, <laughs> it was a tough transition by that, let's say, third hour. Um, so what I do now is I actually have the lecture component online specifically. Uh, and students are required with watching the video lecture um, asynchronously, that is, so it's on their schedule. Um, they're required to take a quiz with that lecture. Um, in order to kind of highlight some things that I want them to know and also to make sure that on a graded scale, I can see how well they absorb the course content uh, to an extent. And then with that, they also have a pre-lab assignment to go with their upcoming in-person lab. And that prepares them for the majority of the theory component until we actually start to discuss it in class and apply it hands-on. Thank you. Um, is there a teacher or a student that changed how you approach teaching? Yes, and I love talking about all three of them. So okay. um, I'll, I'll go quite quickly, but in high school, I had a teacher and 
Mr. Hayon. I'm in touch with him still today, uh, more than a decade later, decade and a half later. Um, he was a baseball coach of mine. He was a um, uh, two levels of physics teacher of my. I loved everything about his courses, his persona. And what, what I would say I got from him is, um, I guess, the atmosphere of the class, right? So he, he instilled a lot of passion of his topic, but he liked to have an open environment in the class. And students who really enjoyed participating and students who maybe didn't so much want to participate always felt like they could when they wanted to. And he was good at encouraging students who didn't speak up often, but he knew what they knew just from class assignments. He was good at having them have their moment to shine, let's say. So I learned a lot about applying that concept to my teaching style as a whole. And then later on, as an undergrad, actually, I had a professor, uh, Mr. Majekis, uh, pronounce his name correctly. Um, <laughs> if I learned anything from uh, Mr. Majekis, it was the word, it depends. And what I mean by that is in our field, in exercise science, there's so much gray area, right? You can ask a question and, well, it depends, you know? Yes, in this context, no, in this context. And I think that question or that style of asking questions or answering questions uh, became not so much a mantra of mine, but definitely a large component of my teaching style. So when I actually did start teaching, I had a student who is actually now, many years later, an adjunct here at NYIT, because he came through the ranks with his um, bachelor's and master's as well. And as a student, uh, he really took well to the it depends mantra there. <laughs> he loved asking questions and he really liked applying uh, class content. So I realized that um, there is a way to, you know, after class, keep students who want more, who might be more interested in uh, discussing personal um, experiences in their lives uh, with the course or with the theory from the course. Uh, and keeping them after and kind of instilling maybe more than just a grade with them. So, uh, Mr. Pinzone, if you're watching, thank you very much for helping me with that. <laughs> and we look forward to having you again next semester as an adjunct. Um, I also, I wanted to ask you about your recent publication that you and Mindy Har co-authored. It was in the fall 2020 issue of the Journal of Allied Health. And you're, you're talking about best practices for encouraging student participation in face-to-face -face and virtual environments. Um, in that article, you talk about the community of inquiry model. Can you briefly describe what it is and how it influences your teaching? Absolutely. So um, I was actually introduced to the model uh, through Mindy and then also through some of our um, I guess actually the Center of Teaching and Learning's uh, continuing education opportunities as well. And I recognized that um, I was applying some of their concepts or some of the concepts, I could say, but it kind of helped me, I, I would say, identify places where I could do better. So basically the model splits um, into three interdependent elements in a way. Uh, there's the social, the cognitive, and then the teaching presence of the model itself. And ultimately, the goal of those three elements is to have a very deep and hopefully meaningful learning experience for students. And I would even argue that it helps have that same experience for the instructor themselves. So I was very focused on, okay, the teaching presence aspect. How can I 
teach to the best of my ability. I want to know the course content, but I also want to make sure that I'm doing a good job of representing it. Then there's, of course, the cognitive, which a lot of that for me was simply asking students, how'd you do? Like, how do you feel this material is coming along with, uh, or how do you feel you're handling the material? And I would get, I love it, it's easy, to I have no idea where I am anymore. And sometimes that threw me off because students would answer questions in class and they were still saying, I have no idea where I am. So in part, I realized that I wasn't emphasizing the social aspect very much, especially when we transitioned, and I could come back to this a little bit later as well, when we transitioned virtually. A lot of it was, how can I be a good teacher still? How can I still teach the course content? I took away the social aspect where a lot of students I think encourage each other if you set them up for that and help bring each other up to the level of, oh, you know this material, let's talk about it and make sure that you feel comfortable talking about it, recognizing that you don't need to know every detail from the textbook to be considered qualified to speak about this. Um, so the model itself really helped me, like I said, narrow down what I was and wasn't focused on. And when Mindy asked to collaborate with me on this, I was very excited. I actually, I had just had the experience and just spent so much time enhancing my own teaching methods that uh, it was actually a pleasure to work on. Um, your point about the social piece and students encouraging each other is so important. How did you, how did you do that on Zoom? It's just, how did you do that on Zoom? Great question. And I do kind of want to address this because I think the go-to answer for people is a breakout room, right? Um, so I'm lucky enough to still be a student myself. I'm continuing for my doctoral degree at Columbia and my professors used breakout rooms, right? It was a big, um, through that experience, I recognized when a breakout room was beneficial <laughs> and when it absolutely was a waste of time. Um, and the big thing was the guided learning aspect to it. So providing students with a very specific task. Um, you can also, when you know your students, you can kind of choose like who you put in the groups. There's always, there should be a leader in the group and maybe somebody who is a little bit weaker in the group as well. So overall, they bring each other up in positive ways. Um, and then the other thing is you have to enter the groups. And even if you don't participate, your presence, this is the mere presence theory, right? Your presence alone motivates students to pay attention, do their work, make sure they're discussing. Maybe they had a question that you can now give a very brief answer, but you got to keep it brief. Otherwise, it becomes a lecture of your own in this small group um, and then move on to the next group. So I realized that breakout rooms alone were not enough. I really started giving assignments that forced discussion. And I would choose the person who, let's say they were gonna come back from their breakout rooms and present. I chose the person ahead of time and it wasn't the leader of the group. And I always planned that on purpose. So leader of the group might have led the discussion in the breakout room, but the person who's not necessarily comfortable speaking up can have a rehearsed answer. They just have to make sure that they participated during the actual breakout room. Very nice, good, good strategies. Let's talk a little more about the changes that happened when COVID hit. So how did you feel back in March, 2020 when we went virtual? All right, so uh, when I read the question and I started thinking about the answer, like 
how did I feel? So I remember <laughs> uh, Dr. Har actually apologizing to me and saying, I'm so sorry, this is what you're going through at first, you know, your first semester here teaching. And I was almost a little surprised because I don't think it had hit me yet. And I don't know if it hit any of us, what was about to happen, right? Like we didn't necessarily know that it was going to be such a long endeavor and a complete virtual shift, at least not at the beginning. Uh, so a lot of it for me was just, oh, you know, it's spring break or the students have, I have a little bit of time to prepare my next lessons. Uh, and then as it became a little bit more of a, this is the rest of the semester, it became a little struggle in like, how do I provide again, my best teaching presence to these students. Uh, and I will say I failed more times than I succeeded, um, in my opinion, I guess I should say, but trying different modalities of teaching, trying different methods to get the uh, lesson across. Um, I was uh, TAing a course at Columbia at the time, actually, and um, I was on the phone a lot with that professor where we were just discussing different ideas for how to um, present material. So VoiceThread um, was a very big one for both of us at first. Um, I actually ended up finding personally that a video recording was stronger for me um, because I'm very animated when I, I speak and I want them to know when I'm more passionate um, or maybe something that's not as important to focus on. I, I use my hands. I use my face. Like, I want them to know that. Um, so a lot of my audio recordings became video recordings. And I started to find that I could interact, even though I wasn't with the students in person, I could almost feel like I'm interacting with them in the moment. Um, I also learned how to use Zoom, which I remember being on several Zoom meetings, not having much of a clue and not minding that I didn't know what I was doing until all of a sudden we all need to be Zoom experts and run the course efficiently, right? Uh, so I learned as much as I could about Zoom. I became very proficient at presenting my material while also putting up students' faces um, in more of a gallery view. And I, I felt like I was in the classroom to the extent when a student made that, you know, like, I don't understand face, I would call them out, you know, say, uh, Jeremy, what, what was that face? You, you want me to repeat that? Or not even say just that. Jeremy, say that back to me. What, what do you think we're going over, right? Something along those lines. And if the environment stayed open and chatty, I feel students didn't mind being, well, <laughs> they always mind being called on, but they were willing to participate when being called out because it would be okay to be wrong. Nice. So, um, so that's one way you were getting them to participate actively. John Hendrakis is commenting that he likes your, your suggestion about having one person leading in the breakout room and another person reporting. Um, were there any other changes you made to get your, your students to participate more actively? Uh, yes. So um, one of my favorites was, I mean, I called it Zoom a friend. Um, that wasn't per se what it was, but what I started doing was having uh, students on the spot, right? You know, they're in the hot seat answering questions or course discussion. I allowed them in our large group gathering on Zoom to call on each other. And in a way, this helped me enhance that social presence we talked about, but also the cognitive experience where a student would be called on. They might not know the material. They're allowed to ask another friend for help. As the course, or as the class, I should say, gets more involved and we come up with an answer, I make sure to come back to that material later on. And you do the same thing. You call on the student who struggled at first. You can allow everyone else to help, but now the student who was allowed to Zoom a friend <laughs> needs to be the one to come up with the answer. So um, again, it makes almost a discussion or a collaborative experience, but the social and cognitive enhance each other in that aspect. 
Right. How did the students respond? Um, yes, so it varies. <laughs> um, overall, once the atmosphere was set, uh, I would say very well, right? Students sometimes freeze up and we, we've all, I'm sure, experienced either ourselves just fumbling over our own words, not knowing where to go with it. Um, or I would say they maybe provide an answer that's not even the question you asked, right? They weren't completely attentive yet until they learned the flow of how class is going to go, um, at least in the new virtual setting at the time. So uh, sometimes they responded poorly in that context, but I found a good way to um, handle that was similar to how I would do it in person. So uh, it, it's asking very leading questions, very encouraging, of course, but if students don't give an answer, you still say good, right? Like if they don't give a correct answer, I should say, no matter what, good. I like where you were thinking of that. I'm thinking of it a little bit differently and then re-ask the question, leading them more in the direction you want. And through that, again, it opens that safety environment, right? It's so hard to participate in a group, even when you're comfortable public speaking. Like I love public speaking, but I still feel that little red face, heart racing experience. Of course, they're going to have it, especially if they don't necessarily feel like they're comfortable with the material yet or they don't know how comfortable they are. So when I provided or I tried to provide that safer environment, I got very good reactions and a lot of participation. Now you mentioned before what I think we all experienced. We, we went remote in March. We thought it was a couple weeks. No, okay, till the end of the semester. And all of a sudden we were gonna be remote in the fall. Um, what else did you change for fall? So um, in terms of everything that I had transitioned when we first went online, right? So I had to take out all the in-person lab material, um, try to make at-home assignments, things like that. Uh, I didn't want, if I'm being completely honest, I don't feel that the assignments taught the lesson that I would have been able to teach in person because I had transitioned it so quickly. So in the fall, my goal was to try to provide some sort of teaching platform or a approach to teaching that would still provide that content, even if it was just me showing videos online um, and then describing how we would use these techniques to be beneficial. So what I actually did um, for the fall semester specifically was instead of reinventing the wheel, I got in touch with a few companies that um, provided courses online with already prepared guided learning um, segments. And I went through their material, right? Whichever ones I felt gave the best um, both information and presented the information most clearly were the ones that I chose. Um, and then I used those to structure my free lessons before we would meet on Zoom. Same thing I'm doing now with students having to do pre-labs, but in this content, it was, they didn't have to watch a virtual lecture. They had to go through a guided learning experience before we talked about the chapter in class. Do you think overall it's been successful? Uh, yes. So overall, I actually think it's been very successful because whether or not students and faculty realize it, we have all learned a lot. <laughs> um, I understand that it's out of our comfort zone. And if it isn't, I would be surprised at the person admitting that. I might even consider they're lying a little bit. Um, but that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? So part of that is going to help enhance as things potentially transition to what they used to be. It's going to help enhance the in-person experience by maybe providing more asynchronous or virtual 
um, skill to teaching lessons. So students in person get even more out of the course content. Interesting. So what do you think you will take back to your in-person teaching? So uh, I, I have always loved in-class discussions and often I've missed the opportunity to have them until the very end, just before dismissing students. Um, because, you know, there was so much time focused on lecture and then we had to do the lab and then one of the lab groups is uh, running late compared to the other lab groups. And there's so many things that um, I always felt like time became an issue. I personally love the asynchronous video lecture. Here's the material. Make sure you guide them with what to focus on in the lecture because an hour recording for any of us, I mean, I don't know about most people, but I listen to it a little bit faster, right? You play uh, playback speed a little bit faster and sometimes you get distracted because you're on your computer and you hear an email come in or, so you need to make sure that you keep their attention and give them what to focus on throughout the video lecture. From there then, I can now take that content and have class discussion, which is exactly how I'm running the exercise phys class uh, where we review the lecture but not in its entirety. First, they ask questions from it, and then I ask them questions from it. And we get into discussions about, uh, did this concept in bioenergetics relate to our muscle phys discussion the week before or the week after, things like that. And you're finding that the quizzes you're giving are making sure that the students actually watch the video. Yes, absolutely. And in fairness, um, I will say this, I will never underestimate a student's ability to get by doing less work. They'll get a good grade and still do less work. So I have to constantly change the quizzes. I noticed at the beginning, some of the questions I used were a little bit generic. Uh, a Google search could find an answer. Um, so I had to change my questions to be more from the lecture specific and not necessarily a Google search away. Um, but since then, I do feel like uh, I've had some solid success, especially based on their recent midterm grades, which were, very good. Good job, everybody. <laughs> Sometimes in class, there's a moment where everything pulls together almost magically and you and the students are fully engaged and it's absolutely transformative. Can you tell us about one of those moments? Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I would actually, um, I'm going to come back to our previous Spring because I think this was the moment when I realized how I wanted to approach long-term um, online and in-person skill sets, right? So I provided students with a pre-recording, and this was still when I was using an audio recording of the lesson. I gave them exactly what um, questions I was going to ask, and I made one question for each student. And the way we went about it is I, I uh, share screens screen shared the uh, the PowerPoint. And I went through the PowerPoint quite quickly um, since I had just given them the audio recording of it. And I asked the students to present their answer to the question in order, but I didn't leave it at that. And this was the first time that I turned it into a discussion um, where maybe a student came up with part of the answer, but I wanted a little bit more. I opened it to the class or had them call on somebody else, for example, the, the Zooming your friends, similar to that. And it just turned into such an interactive course that since everyone had answered their question, no matter what, they had to participate at least once. Because the course content maybe was more interesting at that time, or maybe I just did a good job at the audio recording for once, so whatever. Um, we had such a great overall discussion and it ended up being, you know what the topic was? It was uh, environmental factors in exercise. 
right? So it was such a strange, like, I mean, maybe it's not a strange topic, but it wouldn't be one that I would have selected as so interesting. But within that regard, everyone was interested, everyone participated, everyone had a little bit to add, both theory and personal experience. And I can honestly say it was one of my favorite classes through the entire pandemic. It feels good to see them excited. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. We've got another question in the chat, again from John, uh, pointing out that for fall 21, a lot of us are still teaching on Zoom. And after a year of Zoom, um, he's asking what are the key concepts you wanna make sure you incorporate in your lectures? Uh, the key concepts of the topic or like Zoom concepts? I'm gonna interpret that as, as Zoom concepts so that it's more broadly applicable. We got a thumbs up from John. <laughs> okay. um, so in terms of Zoom concepts, um, this kind of actually, and I was able to touch on this a little bit with the article that Mindy and I worked on. Um, there's a lot that can be applied directly from the in-person to the Zoom lecture and then vice versa. So one thing was um, being able to see students' faces. I know that at first people had a lot of trouble because students didn't want to put on their cameras, which I don't blame them. Like I had to go through a lot of work to set up my background and you have to prepare yourself at home to, uh, for people to see you. So what I would do is something along the lines of, um, you don't have to put your camera on, but just so you know, if I don't see a face, I'm calling on you first for an in-class answer. Students hate it. They put their videos on right away, no matter where they are. So uh, any way to force that um, eye contact in a way, even though it's obviously not directly eye contact, I will always maintain that. Um, even right now, like in our own Zoom meeting, uh, the people I can see, I'm kind of focusing more on them. So I've always believed that that's a big part to focus on. I also like the um, guided group discussion coming back to the whole. So in class, I would not usually split people into groups to discuss things. We would usually just have larger class discussions. And you, you pick on the people who don't necessarily participate as much. Um, and then when you need a quicker answer, the people who raise their hand up before you finish your question, those are the ones you come to. Um, I do plan on in the future continuing the breakout room concept, whether it's in person or on Zoom, and then ultimately having somebody come back to present the group's conclusions or whatever the answers they came up with. Great, thank you. Um, we wrap up these conversations with recommendations. Is there a particular app or technology tool that makes your teaching better? or streamlines your preparation or makes grading easier? Yes, absolutely. And um, so I'm gonna start out by saying it's Canvas. Um, I had had a lot of experience with Canvas as a student uh, before we shifted to Canvas at NYIT, um, where I had been experienced with Blackboard as an instructor. So I will say right now, um, people are gonna say, you know, it's difficult to change, right? Everybody's afraid to change. Time is always the factor, right, or the excuse. There is, I'll put it this way, there's no good excuse for making your life easier in the long run. Use Canvas, become comfortable with Canvas. It is a phenomenal resource. Um, the LMS platform is just um, very user-friendly and nothing against Blackboard in any regards, but I stand by, I'm very happy with Canvas once I became comfortable using it. Um, I use it for both the asynchronous portion and preparing students for the in-person portion with what they have to print out, what they have to bring, besides obviously the assignments that they already handed in. 
and all of my grading um, besides their final lab report gets submitted on camp, uh, Canvas. So it's very easy for me to keep track of. Great, thank you. Um, we have a couple of minutes. I'm going to ask people if they'd like to unmute, turn on your camera and join the conversation. That was nice, Alex. Th thanks for your, uh, your insights into that. Thanks, John. I appreciate it. And thank you for the question. Yeah. I, I, you know, and, you know, having the gallery view and faces on, making the eye contact, you're really duplicating the classroom uh, setting, calling on people by name. Uh, I like all that. And um, I do like your point of always saying good afterwards instead of, you know, that's not correct. You know, always saying good makes it a judgment-free zone. But it is a challenge getting some people to participate. They are shy and are, they're afraid of being wrong and judged by their classmates. So you want to encourage that participation uh, from everyone. So yeah, nice points. I appreciate it. Thanks, John. And you're right. It definitely is a challenge. I actually, I had a uh, TA once come up to me when I was teaching ballroom dance of all things. I would very randomly yell good to the group as a whole when I saw a student do something correct. And he came up to me and said, I don't know why you always do that. You just randomly shout, good job. You know, like, what did anyone, nobody did anything. I was like, no, 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 it matters. It's the little things. So he actually became the instructor of the ballroom class when I left. Years later, he graduated and came back. And he, he actually texted me one day and said, I get it now. I understand why you say those little comments. Uh, students continue to do it when you encourage them. Even if no one else knows why you said good, that one student knows. And Alex, do you think, you know, echoing John's point, like having that positive feedback, students that may be a little shyer and more afraid to be wrong or to ask questions, do you think, you know, in returning to in-person learning one day, those students will now be more comfortable doing that in person because they've had this experience that's a little bit awkward? Uh, awesome, awesome question. Yes, um, but I think there's a second component to it once they leave that environment. So um, in, in your classroom or in that learning environment when things have been made a little bit more comfortable, um, I think it gives them an opportunity to practice and then to express themselves right or wrong. But I also think, um, and this is part of my actual um, teaching enhancement plan, where I want to have them practice even more giving off their opinions and backing up their opinions um, with things that they've learned verbally. And that they might start by writing out their theories and then talking about them. And in uh, the exercise science field, a big part of that is you can do almost anything if you can back it up with a reason. So should you train, uh, this is a classic one, right? Should you go heavyweight light reps or should you go lightweight uh, a lot of reps, right? Everyone always asks this type of question. Well, it depends. And if you back up your answer with a reason and you, you verbally become comfortable expressing it, then you're usually gonna be right as long as you retest you know, four or six weeks later to see if it's working. So yes, students will become much more comfortable, but you also have to keep them practicing once they're no longer in front of you being encouraged. So you mentioned, you know, your exercise physiology course, you get to talk about the why, and that's one of your favorite things about it, right? What do you think as far as, you know, some of the topics that come up, there have to be some interesting myths that you guys are kind of talking through and critically analyzing and dispelling, right? Because we hear it all the time, you know, one week, you know, this is the best exercise for you. The next week, it's something else. So what are your thoughts on that? 
Uh, I love it. <laughs> I absolutely. So <laughs> um, exactly like you said, I love talking about them. Um, I love giving both directions, right? So like, why did the myth come up? That That's a good conversation piece. Where did it first come from um, or grow from? And then what might be a more accurate uh, explanation for that myth? So a, a, a good one for me, this is a little harder without a demonstration platform, but um, everyone's heard squatting. Squatting is bad for your knees, right? Or They'll say, uh, don't squat with your knees going over your toes, uh, something like that. Like they shouldn't pass your toes. Well, that's not actually correct. And that actually works for lunging as well. Your knee shouldn't pass your toes. So it's not the knee that matters. It's something called a hip hinge. So what you're supposed to do is actually settle your hips backwards as you bend at the knee and at the hip. And what happens on a biomechanical level here is the glutes and hamstrings, so the hips themselves, take most of the weight while the knee just becomes a mechanism that you move through, not that you load the tissue. And we all hear this, you know, it's bad for your knees, don't let your knees pass your toes, but that's not actually the correct approach to looking at it. And students will hear this and they go, oh my goodness, I've heard this before, it makes so much more sense now. And then I ask a student to disagree with me. I say, listen, whether or not you like what I just said, tell me I'm wrong. Let's talk about why that might be the case. And inevitably, somebody will say something that becomes an encouraging conversation. And at the end of the day, I've learned something. I think they've learned something. And the entire class has had an experience where you question the norms and you develop on top of those norms reasons why we want to do them and reasons why we might not want to do them. I think my knees are going to thank you tomorrow. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. (laughs) I, I did my squats yesterday, Alex. (laughs) <laughs> hey, I'm doing mine later today. Uh, my training buddy just texted me. We're squatting today. <laughs> I'm only using a 30-pound dumbbell. So that's my the weights, the weights are over, just goblet squats. That's beautiful. <laughs> There's absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. <laughs> I, I did have a so, question. Oh, I'm, I'm last, sorry. Last one. Go. Okay. Uh, being that you're doing a lab course, and a lot of my courses are lab intensive as well. So you have that component. So um how much are you equipment dependent? I know in exercise phys, you can have, you know, people monitor the change in heart rate with activity and, um, but how much do you want to get across the lab component while you're teaching remotely? You know, and how equipment dependent is that? That's a phenomenal question. And I would even argue now that we're in person, it's still hard because we need to not be too close to each other or the extra cleaning protocols. Um, so that's a really great question. Um, Part of the reason I felt like I didn't do a great job in that um, initial transition to virtual is I made um, the lab assignments that would have been equipment dependent um, at home, you know, basic, I would almost say physical education assessments, not higher level exercise science assessments. Uh, So like flexibility, instead of breaking down flexibility into, uh, yes, fit and reach, but also goniometer measures where we measure the joint angle or doing um, functional movement screening, I made it just the sit and reach at home. <laughs> so I took away so much content because I wasn't able to uh, demonstrate it with them and actually have them participate in it. And I realized asking for student feedback that they didn't really love sitting at home doing a sit and reach on their own. So uh, I started just taking videos, like I said, and actually while the video played, I, I would mute it and I would kind of voice over my own um, aspect of it. These are like YouTube videos that I was familiar with. Um, and then I'd provide them with the links to the video that 
you know, the professional might do more or explain more about the theory or what to do after the actual um, assessment was done. I still stand by without the practical experience of them doing it. There is a weakness, right? Because there's nothing like actually having your hands on it and messing up and fiddling with things to get better at it. Um, but at the very least, I, I felt more comfortable having exposed them to different uh, clinical and field tests. Thank you so much. Um, thank you to Alex and thank you to everyone who joined us today. We've been speaking with Alex Rothstein, a professor of interdisciplinary health sciences and coordinator of the exercise science program in the School of Health Professions as part of our great teaching series. Alex, thank you so much for spending time with us today and sharing what you do. You, you are a wealth of great ideas. Um, this thank conversation you. has been recorded and we will be making it available on the Center for Teaching and Learning webpage, nyit.edu slash ctl. Um, if you'd like to be featured and come and chat with us, please email the Center for Teaching and Learning at ctl at nyit.edu, or better yet, fill out the form at http bit.ly, I'm gonna ask Jackie to put it in the chat, bit.ly slash great-teaching. So thank you all. Thank you, everybody. Pleasure. Thank <laughs> you.